0: The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out Podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's Podcastapps.com. Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices. Joining us today is mayoral candidate Joe Halos. Joe has eight years of experience serving on the Town of Blue Mountains Council and is a successful local business operator. He has been in the community for more than 44 years and has a lot to say about its past, present and future. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello, Joe Halos. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Mountain Village Voices podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I'm glad to be here congratulations on your candidacy for mayor in the upcoming election. I think it's great when anyone volunteers to get more involved in the community and support us at this really important time.
1: Well, thank you. I don't know if I need congratulations on being a candidate. <laughs> Maybe on becoming your mayor, I would accept congratulations, but yeah, thanks.
0: <laughs> I, I've said this to a few people, but I really do believe that it's important to Celebrate people who do volunteer and and get in the race, because I think it's it's important and it is in of itself an achievement. So let's kick it off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your your history in, in the community?
1: Well, I was born and raised in the Niagara area, born in Port Weller, actually, and that's where the Welland Canal empties into Lake uh, Ontario. Most of my formative years were in Niagara Falls, school and high school. Uh, sports were a big part of my background. And I had very positive influences with regards to, you know, sports and growing up. It was a great time in the 60s, like, you know, all the kids played together. We were all the baby boomer children, and it was pretty idyllic lifestyle, kind of up until Love Canal happened, which was right across where our drinking water came from, kind of made us a little bit aware of the environmental issues uh, way back then. Um, You know, even back then, uh, I was affected when the Cuyahoga River kept catching fire in Cleveland. we see this all the time because we are, I lived you know on a border town and we're quite plugged into the. US. Anyhow, off I went to University, University of Guelph first where I did sports and then I went to University of Western Ontario when I got quite interested in biology, microbiology, immunology, and got an honors degree in immun- immunology. Really? Yeah. Wow. So all, all this virology stuff with COVID and all
0: that, like, you know, I understand it very well. <laughs> Fascinating. It must have been interesting to have studied all that and then to have lived through something like this. Like, did you have a different perspective? Were you thinking back to your school a lot during the pandemic?
1: Have we flattened the curve yet? <laughs> I,
0: I don't know. Have we? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it was kind of interesting because we, we were very starting, like we were playing with DNA back in the labs and I mean, right. uh, you know, taking DNA from one organism, putting it into, into another one, which is, you know, I don't know if I'd recommend doing that, but it was very interesting. I'm still, I was out of a lifelong interest in science, biology, physics, geology, you know, everything. I'm very science-based and I've always really enjoyed that. So I became a medical sales representative in the Windsor area, calling on hospitals and doctors. And after a couple of years, a friend of mine bought a farm up in the Beaver Valley. I'd owed him some labor because I would bought a fourplex in Windsor. and I'd started my real estate career kind of when I was 24 buying income properties. So I came up to help my friend on his farm. And I just fell in love with the area. I said, I didn't know Ontario had places like this, Hmm. you know, being a Southern Ontario boy. So I just kind of wound up my affairs in Windsor and I moved up here and, you know, I've done various things. When I first moved up in 78, the economy was just changing and it kind of went into a deep, dismal place for a number of years. So it was difficult to find a job. I worked at Blue Mountain in the winter times doing various things, I guess most generally as a groomer. I'd had experience as an equipment operator through my dad's excavating business when I was young. So that was a good job ticket throughout my life, actually. And I worked in agriculture. I worked for a cash crop farming operation. So I got to know a lot of people in the valley, visiting their farms, combining their crops. And I ended up marrying the farmer's daughter. You know, we have a lovely family and built a house in the Beaver Valley. I was always interested in real estate. So that as the, the early 80s when interest rates spiked up to you know, 20% and, and people were losing their farms and their houses. And slightly after that, real estate kind of started coming back. So I mm-hmm. started buying real estate again in 84, 85. And then I became an agent and a broker. And the, another recession came along in 89, when real estate values fell in half from 89 to 95. And um, I started a, a company kind of out of the depths of the recession. And with two partners and myself, you know, we we built a, a leading real estate brokerage, and uh, that part to me really kind of helped me crystallize my mind what leadership is. Mm. Because we had this company, there's no real estate selling, there's nobody making any money, there's nothing happening, right? So I started writing an article in the local paper, The Enterprise Bulletin. It's called Message from the President. Hmm. I ran my picture, and my first one was an article on real estate. And then I wrote other articles and other articles, and it was interesting. When I went out in the community, people would recognize me. They say, Oh, I saw your article. Oh, I saw this. They go, Oh, it's the president. And you know, people started recognizing me. And I realized. That everywhere I went, I was the face of the company. Mm-hmm. I was the face of our organization. I had to fly the flag. I, yeah. Wherever I went, I flew the flag and people recognized me. And that was really kind of what you know helped me realize what leadership was to do that.
0: Yeah. You're the face of the company, the team, everything.
1: And the better that you do, the better everyone else does. For sure. You know, that's the thing. If you, If you mess up, you're going to be sure that everyone else feels it as well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you're certainly going to hear about it when you're the face, which is good, though. And you're certainly going to hear about yeah. it. Yeah. So I
1: continued on. Then I went out on my own, and, and uh, I've got a number of real estate holdings in Blue Mountains and Collingwood, and I've been to Meaford and various other places in Ontario. And, you know, I raised a family. I coached a lot of sports. When you have kids in a small community and you want them to be involved, whether it's sports or brownies or or, or music or whatever, you have to be involved. There's no place just to send them, go do this. Everybody has to be involved. So I became quite involved because that was my background in coaching sports, girls, boys at the Beaver Valley Community School and at Beaver Valley Athletic Association, Collingwood Collegiate. And then other various uh, independent organizations. So uh, that was a big part of my life and my growing up. The kids are raised and gone now. They're doing well. I've got grandchildren. So I'm in a really good place. My real estate ventures, I've reduced a lot of them. So I have time now. And, you know, this is my community past, present, and the future. And I'm very, you know, I'm very interested in seeing it do well into the future. So that's why I'm running. Again, it's my community and uh, I've got experience and ability to help guide us through some tough times, which I see coming. Mm-hmm. I think we're just going to some really tough times. Like I said, I've seen real estate values crash at least twice in my lifetime to half. Yeah. And what would happen? I mean, all of a sudden attainable housing would look a whole different, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> it certainly would. A lot of things would be very different.
1: A lot of things would be. So yeah. As a municipality, like I expect if I'm elected mayor that we're going to batten down the hatches a little bit. We're going to be really cognizant of finance and spending because uh, I really believe that we're going to see some interesting and challenging times. Yeah,
0: I I would agree with you that there's a desire for a conservative approach and a cautious approach. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something that you bring a lot of insights into. So one part is You talk about the various cycles in the South Georgian Bay and how the real estate sector has been affected, but also how it bounced back and how a community of professionals in that space has helped to bounce back the community and grow it. And that includes developers, that includes realtors, that includes, you know, all the different uh, support businesses that help people create great homes and communities. I think when people think about the economic growth of the South Georgian Bay, automatically agriculture comes into the picture automatically people think about tourism but development is probably the third leg of the stool of many legs of the stool and uh we we don't necessarily i think give it the credit it's due in terms of its ability to drive innovation create value create the community and then the the secondary economic benefits of all of that so i think You know, your experience in seeing the ups and downs there is an interesting one. So based on you seeing a few of those booms and busts, per se, you know, why do you think we need to batten down the hatches right now? What do you think is is in store on that front?
1: Inflation, which, you know, we look at trying to solve issues, attainable housing, affordable housing certainly comes to the fore. But a lot of the cause of that is beyond our control. I attribute a lot of the cause is to monetizing, you know, the government pumping money into the economy over a number of years. So we've increased our money supply three to four times over what it was before. So any assets of value are just going up. We have the same sandbox, only now we've got a whole bunch more paper money. Mm-hmm. So anything worth value is just going up. The opposite can be true. As the interest rates go up and inflation starts eating into these things, we can see these things come back down. And it, in my experience, real estate has always come out okay as long as people aren't forced to, to sell at the wrong times. Right. You know, it's, it's really important. It's timing. It's not a liquid investment. You know, if you hold on, it goes up. We have a lot of good developers. We have a lot of good planners. And I'm really encouraged to see people, developers working with the town and with groups a lot more than they have in the past, trying to bring us what we're asking for on site plans and on various things like that. That's an important change. We've had challenges in the past with planning and building and, and permitting, and we still have challenges, but I think we have very willing and knowledgeable developers here that will work with us. And we're seeing that with Aquaville and others. And some of the planners that are doing this are wonderful community uh, resources.
0: Yeah. Innovation is coming Mm -hmm. from the market, so to speak. And I think what we've seen in this last council is a a willingness to think differently and work and work with them. Mm -hmm. Do you see any risks in that there's not really a formalized process for that yet? It's kind of on the bleeding edge. So you know what we're seeing right now is developers coming to the table with some creative ideas, an understanding that the housing built forum probably needs to be a little more diverse to sort of meet the varying needs of different community members. Mm -hmm. How can council create a process to facilitate that as opposed to it being one-offs and and taking long or, or being questioned? I think sometimes the concerns that the community has is that, it's not transparent what these creative deals might be so how can council create a, a process for that
1: well it's ongoing and i think you know we we've certainly tried to sit down pre-consultation with developers yeah. talking about what we need i guess some of the issues are and i'm i'm trying to think cuz i watched uh, a recent public meeting uh with regards to one of the developments and, you know, people were saying, we're objecting to various things. It's too close here. All these things and and guidelines for building. And the planner, you know, stood up and she was absolutely correct. She kept saying, like, developers have the right to build on a property if it complies with the official plan, yeah. the zoning bylaw, Ontario building code. Guidelines are guidelines. Yeah. They're not mandatory. And because, you know, the community may think these are good ideas, developers don't have any requirement to put that in there but technology and innovation comes from the building sector, not from government down. Right. And that's where we're going to see it. And that's where we've got to encourage these types of things. For sure. Whether you're talking about net zero building or passive solar or any of these, uh, you know, newer things. And that's where I see us winning a lot, even in, in all the science things and energy and storage. You know, all the technology and the improvements are, are coming, are, are mind boggling. It just takes them a while to get there.
0: That's right. <laughs> yeah. And when you are on the cutting edge, you're kind of creating new molds. So that takes longer. But yeah. my sense is that a more robust official plan that can serve as a guide and, and incentivize some of that creativity is a good thing and a step. What do you think? Well, it is. Unfortunately, some of the
1: thing, the good tools that we had in the official plan, one was bonusing. Right, which I thought was a very good tool where uh, a developer could get you know increased density, increased height in return for some community uh, Benefit. benefits, no matter what they may be. And we've used that. We use that with Windfall. We've yeah. got affordable housing from that, and we've got some cash. So that's gone now, unless you're up to six stories in the new official plan. So that's really tough because you want to make deals with a developer. You don't want to go to LPAT, or anything like this. Uh, yeah. You want to stay out of those hearings. You want to stay out of court. But if you can make a deal on the steps of the courthouse, <laughs> that's where the best yeah, deal, yeah.
0: deals are made. But, Do you think bonusing is a, a tool that could come back and should be considered?
1: Well, I mean, it's gone now. So what I think doesn't really matter.
0: <laughs> it has
1: its uses. The issue with bonusing is kind of the issue that we're almost seeing with the new official plan suggesting in that It leaves it up to the council of the day. And then they use terms like the new recommendations. They use terms like nature and character. And there's no definition of them. And when you look in the official plan and you see six stories, and then you try to say, well, it doesn't fit the nature, the character, the ambiance. Those words really don't mean anything when you've got six stories in there. Right, It's not going to carry the day. And that's where we end up in trouble. And people say, well, we go to LPAT and they just, 97%, I've heard this statistic. I would say 83% of all statistics are made up on the spot. But yeah. um, 97% or a large proportion of the LPAT hearings favor the developer. People say, "Oh, they're favoring." Well, they're not really favoring developers. They're applying provincial policy. That's right, as it's written. That's right, and, and the provincial policy is for densification, it's for intensity, it's for increased height, and it's basically urban Toronto policy, where I think that uh, rural communities such as ours and other communities really don't always fit into that mold. If you look at some of the issues or some of the statements in the official plan, and they're general language. And the general language of the official plan says basically everything. But they list a number of things. This is provincial policy now. Provincial policy says they want to increase densification, better use of services, all these type of things. They also have in there environmental protection. Mm-hmm. So which is more important? Why don't we put environmental protections on the top? Like they don't say one is more important than the other; they list them all. Of course. So in our area, I think environmental protections are more important. We've got the Niagara Escarpment and all this, you know, wonderful rural area, as opposed to a lot of urban issues with major cities
0: facing. Yeah. If the council of the day can't formulate the right framework or an official plan, might not be able to do it. How do you set that local course? What's the tools that the municipality can use to to try to define that better? Well,
1: it's all official plan. Yeah. Uh, that's where it comes from. And, you know, as it stands right now, I find the wording quite no. uh, not precise enough. For instance, when they talk about the height, they talk about six stories being allowed kind of in the, not the downtown core, but the downtown area, King Street Highway mm-hmm. 26 area, kind of in Thornbury. They say that six stories may be permitted. And then they go on to say if it, you know, complies with this and this, and then After that, there's another paragraph that says, you know, notwithstanding, six stories may be considered in all other areas of the town, as long as it complies with B1.6, which is on arterial roads, close to shopping, all this kind of thing. So what's the difference between permitted and considered? Right. Yeah. So
0: so what you're saying is the current draft is too vague, not clear enough, so it needs to be tightened up.
1: And also with that, I would say, I guess my position on that is... In this town, our general height limit is three stories. Having said that, we have four and five story buildings. Sure, and there are and reasons. Six for story that. buildings, yeah, and six story buildings, yeah. The one at the
0: at the base of the river,
1: yeah, okay, yeah. A five with a coup plus six, yeah. Story. But there are reasons for that. Yeah, and I would propose that if a developer, again, if there are, or anyone has good reasons for a six story building, well, bring it forward. Right, but. In the plan, rather than enshrine and put six in our official plan, again, there's a paragraph that says anybody can apply for amendment to this official plan as long as it meets the criteria listed in V one6 or whatever, which is pretty much the same as they're proposing. So let's leave it at three and let anybody who wants to go five, four or five or six apply. Let them do the work. Let them make the case that it's needed here and uh, keep it at six. You know, I don't want to see six story buildings everywhere. And by opening up the official plan, putting six in there, that's good. I think that's the not, fear
0: is that if, yeah. once you commit to a number, then it just sets a new benchmark and then suddenly it's 12 or <laughs> I get that that's the fear. Although I guess the counterpoint to what you're suggesting is that if you leave it at three and then you permit the consideration of something different, then that's where you're at risk of a developer coming forward, then going to LPAT, and then having no control over the outcome. So I guess that's the fine line, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Again, it's all compromised. That's right.
1: We all want affordable places to live for our families. We all want environmental protections. We all want lovely communities. Yeah but there are compromises we have to be yeah.
0: there are no right or wrong answers yeah i think it's a good point joe because sometimes uh, we all look at if we can just get this one document right that will set the clarity for everything and the reality is that's almost um unattainable <laughs> it's a good it's a good point. If I look at the rapid growth of the town of the Blue Mountains, many new people um, moving to the region. We've seen the full-time residents proportion grow to the majority now, not the minority in terms of people who are here. But people have a connection to the community that's fairly recent. You were here and and in the economy when the economic downturn of, say, the shipbuilding changed and, and that sort of economic shift happened. Maybe can you describe for us what the South Georgian Bay economy was like at that time? And from your perspective, what were the things that brought it to where it is today?
1: That's an interesting question. No one's posed that one. Yeah. I moved here in 1978. I remember my parents saying, well, are moving? that's a depressed area. But it was on the provincial <laughs> manifest or whatever. But there was a lot of industry here. There was a lot of industry. There was a the shipyard. Yeah. There was Kaufman furniture. There was Bendix safety restraints, uh, seat belts. There was uh, uh, the glass plant, which is still there. And that was one of the s- statistics I would use for my real estate kind of career is that we have one of the best industrial bases per capita in all of Ontario. There's a lot of good industries, but one by one, the shipyards closed. That was huge, you know, and the others started closing. Now I think the big glass plant is still in Collingwood and and maybe Canadian Miss, but a lot of those businesses left and uh, it was hard times for years. The only job in the paper was counter help at Charlie Mitchell's Donuts. And we don't even have Charlie Mitchell's Donuts. It was a a mainstay. Mm. But, I mean, things started changing. One of the big changes, well, I don't know if it was a big change, was when Walmart wanted to come to town in the early 90s Mm. and wanted to expand the big mall where all the big box stores are now. And uh, Collingwood put on a a, a moratorium. They did a commercial Assessment, I guess, of where they stood. It, took, it It was about 10 years that they were able to keep Walmart and the big box stores out. And that's when they Interesting. rebuilt the Heritage um, Mall there. They, uh, you know, it used to be a lot smaller. So they allowed those stores to expand and they did, but, and they wouldn't allow any banks or financial institutions to go out there because they want to maintain their downtown core. Yeah. So that was a good. Well, mindset. that
0: was smart planning in advance. Yeah. Cause if you look at some of the small towns, uh, one of the challenges that they're facing is you don't have those service sector businesses there. They've been replaced by financial services and it, it, it tends to sort of drain the, the life out. Exactly. Uh, not that there's not a place for financial institutions, yeah. but yeah, that's interesting. So it's funny, Collingwood has had this propensity to hit the pause button when they're trying to figure out the future, they yes. know, haven't they? Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a, a healthy beef cattle industry here up until the, the late 70s, early 80s. And for whatever reason, I think it was Alberta beef and uh, there were a number of issues, but that basically dried up mm. um, the beef industry kind of collapsed and and but what happened if, when I would look across the Beaver Valley in in the late 70s it was quite open there was a lot of pasture land cattle like they keep things from growing yeah so you look around I'd look across the valley and it was like three quarters open land. Now you look across, and it's pretty well treated. Right. A lot of this stuff is, is grown back up. You know, it's marginal land. Some of it for various crops. I mean, the specialty ag with the apples has made a huge technical uh, technology, you know, increase with different types of orchard stock and and more dense apples, and then we're seeing. So the agricultural industry was kind of different and it's really grown and become one of the real drivers. You see, we've got the apple packing and apple yeah. processing plants and, you know, it's a very important industry for our area. But the other big thing, of course, was when um, around 2000, I forget the original company the bought out Blue Mountain. And started uh,
0: IntroWest. intro
1: yeah. IntroWest. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's another company now. But IntroWest came Blue Mountain in the summertime because I worked at Blue Mountain in the winter time. A lot of local farmers and local people did because it was seasonal. So right. you had the farm in summer and you did winter, and and that's where you met all the all the local people working at Blue Mountain. Yeah, and I mean, funny. I, I mean, this wouldn't happen today, but we used to have after work. <laughs> we used to get together. There were three groups. There were ski patrollers, uh, the ski instructors, and the operations staff, the lifties, they call us. And we would get together after and we would have drinking and boat races. And uh-huh. then we'd all drive home. Like we'd have <laughs> be drinking competitions, you know. <laughs> now that was when it was allowed. That That's was, right. when, it was a it, different it time. Now yeah. it was inappropriate. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, things were different. Um, it was a lot smaller, a lot friendlier, I would mm-hmm. say. I mean, I walk downtown Thornbury. Now I hardly know anybody. But you knew everybody.
0: Well, and I think one of the things you're pointing to is how integrated some of the economic sectors were. So, you know, you had the agricultural sector in the off season, working in the resort in the winter season. And it seems that as we've grown and changed, we've kind of become a little more maybe self-sufficient, but we're missing some of those connections.
1: The other thing that a lot of people don't realize is like we're a, a world famous hub, for mining equipment, mining and quarrying yeah. equipment. Aztec, which was breaker technology, which was Intel has been in Thornberry for 75 years, I believe something like that. And uh, they built some of the biggest mining equipment in the world.
0: I know. And- it's fascinating. I did a tour of it. We had the Minister of Small Business oh, yeah. here. The town did a delegation and we went through that factory and that where they build all this equipment and it was mind blowing. Yeah. And it's right in the middle of Thornberry. Mm-hmm. People don't even know it's there half the time. And yeah. It's huge manufacturing facility. It's impressive. And,
1: and I mean, we have, you know, some residents in the area do complain with some noise issues and stuff like that. And, and Aztec is, has taken some remedial measures to do that. But they're a very, very important uh, industrial citizen for our town, and we really have to support them. I sure, support them, sure. the agriculture industry. And people say, well, we can't keep building. We're going to use up all our farmland. None our farmland is zoned agriculture, specialty ag. There's no settlements going out there. We're not building out there. So yeah, it, it can't happen. Can't happen.
0: So there's a lot of talk right now about economic diversification. You know, how do we sort of uh, improve our economic, excuse me, economic growth? And then on on top of that, you know, what's the role of the municipality in that? So, you know, what from your perspective and, and, you know, we should say you you have served on council before, so you have you've definitely uh, played a role in the past. Where do you think the role of the municipality is in guiding the economic future of the of the region and the town?
1: In my opinion, the first role, most important role of the municipality is to make sure that our core services are, you know, in good shape and can and can withstand uh, future development and growth. It works for everybody, residents, businesses, tourists. You know, we've got to plow our roads. We've got to make sure that our water and sewer systems work really well for everybody. So that's across the board and in, in how we can ensure that we have a good community where people can live, work and play. Yeah. After that, we have municipality, we have our economic development group that's done great work helping businesses get established, um, helping, you know, people understand where they can get this in. So I was just watching the young fellow this morning on, um, the water and sewer expansion on Louisa Street. And they were bringing us up to date where that is. And the town's website now is a wonderful development tool where people can find out all the, all these things. So supporting groups in our community, supporting our economic development, su- supporting Beaver Valley outreach, supporting the Chamber, supporting Blue Mountain Village Association, these groups that do more outreach, for employers and for people supporting those groups so they can go out and do that. I don't see that council because we're so regulated in how we work and so regulated in how we make decisions. It's really hard to do the day by day boots on the ground stuff. So I think it's really important that council support these other groups that go out and do this. Right. It makes a lot more sense that we can get other people and support them doing these things.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that the town of the Blue Mountains is fortunate in is that there are a lot of Individual private sector operators, businesses that are delivering private sector solutions. So when you look at tourism as an example, mm-hmm. tourism marketing, tourism management, that is something that is done by the the industry itself. It, it's not relying on the municipality to right. do its tourism marketing or to do its management, you know, and in mm-hmm. fact, it contributes to other initiatives and, and impacts. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you want to see that continue and or certainly partnerships. Yes. Now, there's been some Good discussion and debate in the community about how different groups, whether it is, you know, the Blue Mountain Village Association, the Blue Mountain Raypayers Association, Chamber of Commerce, Clarksburg Village Association, Beaver Valley Outreach, the community or climate action now, like you know, the this group that's that's been formed to sort of oppose what's going on. And why am I drawing Cast, a blank? Castle Glen. Thank you. was the Nis- a toss
1: up between Castle Glen <laughs> and the Mefer. The Miefer. The, yeah, yeah the,
0: the pump storage. There's a lot of them. So long story short, there are a lot of groups in our community that represent a lot of stakeholders. And I always think that's a measure of an engaged community. But there are questions about how those organizations interact with the municipality in a transparent and ethical way. Any thoughts on how the council can can streamline those relationships and make sure that they can still support them, but also be transparent to the, the community? Or I could ask in a different way, yeah. do you see any risks with the uh, council working closely with these types of communities?
1: I don't know if I see any risks. A number of people have expressed the opinions that call them special interest groups are yeah. kind of lobbying and you know looking out for their members and, and and I can see that viewpoint but you know people are people whether I'm talking to individual people or yourself and and their other people these are my thoughts so I don't see anything like that. What I will say is that personally I'm not involved with any group. I don't take any campaign contributions. Mm -hmm. I'm totally self-funded and I will not sign basically any pledges or any, whether I agree with them or not, I will just not compromise my integrity by signing someone's people's pledges. Pledges, Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to work with all groups in our communities and all people. So I I see them kind of on an equal footing, uh, individuals and and groups.
0: Yeah, I've heard some people call for a special interest group registry or something like that. And I I actually am am for it. I think those kinds of tools can actually facilitate transparency and actually help different groups come forward more more freely. And it holds those special interest groups accountable, but also counsellors because counsellors mm-hmm. record the meetings they have with all of these groups and it becomes very transparent. So I think that could be a tool that, that could actually be beneficial. I think we're at a point now where our, our community wants to understand and I think is appreciative of all these groups, but wants to make sure that everything's fair yeah. and everyone has equal say.
1: Well, it's the special interest groups that are putting on these uh, candidate meetings, yeah. these debates, things like that. If it wasn't for those. I mean, the municipality's not putting these on. That's right. You no, know, you, you folks are looking for answers. You're looking for positions. You're looking for, you know, people to to speak to various things, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, you're doing a good service.
0: Yeah, I mean, you expect that that effort is about sharing information, getting yes. more communities involved. And, yeah. you know, I can tell you from within the village association community, we are, we are like a community of communities. We have members that are businesses. We have members that are oh, residential homeowners, large, small. I mean, it's like a yeah. microcosm of a, of the rest of the the town in a way. Yeah. And, uh, What we're finding is that we got to carve more time for discussion for people to bring ideas forward, to debate each other, to do it openly and to make sure that every voice is heard. And I think that's something that's been accelerated from COVID. And I think we're going to need to do much more of that going forward. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of issues that we've been talking about, whether it's transportation, whether it's the labor shortage, attainable housing environment, you know, from your perspective, What do you think council needs to focus on in any of those big ticket items? What do you think the priorities need to be going forward?
1: I always say, and I take flack for this, my opinions really don't matter what I think are the priorities. <laughs> the priorities are on the table. The official plan review is on the table. That yeah. has to be taken care of you know, and, and, and passed through and it has to go to county, it has to come back. Once you do the official plan review, you have to bring your zoning bylaw up to speed to mirror what the official plan says. So those things have to be done. Those are on the table. Again, I'm an infrastructure guy. We have some significant sewage and water issues that need to be addressed right now. Uh, Expansion of both the Mill Street pumping station and the Thornbury Wastewater Treatment Plant are capitalized for 2023 and need to be done. We're reaching capacity and people don't realize like, all the sewage from the west end of Thornberry has to cross under the Beaver River and it's constrained by two pipes. And it goes to the Mill Street pumping station and then pumped up to the sewage treatment plant. Ah. So the more development you get out of the west end, like it's really constrained to go across there. It was increased. 1990, we had a building moratorium for that reason, exactly. I brought forward, I had some land on Victoria Street, which is now Thorncrest Court, I think they call it, and I was developing that with some joint venture partners, and we brought forward a plan, I believe it was 14 townhouses for affordable housing on that site. They had built them elsewhere in Grand Valley and Orangeville, mm-hmm. it was cookie cutter, here are the plans, we got it, let's go. But the committee wasn't interested for various reasons and, you know, blah, blah, blah. That was up. So anyhow, at that point, there was a building moratorium in Thornberry because the capacity to cross the Beaver River had been reached. They had to put in a second kind of crossing. And so that stopped building for quite a while. So that can happen again. And, you know, with the constraints of crossing the river, that's significant. So, you know, we have to make sure that and high rain events are affecting. Pumping stations and mm. treatment plants, because you get all this inflow just from rain, like it can overflow and yeah. cause, you know. And I think we're going
0: to see that happen more and more.
1: Exactly. So let's yeah. make sure that we're at least, you know, bringing our our infrastructure to where it should be. Yeah. So that's real important. Yeah. In
0: my I, and I know um, one of the things that a lot of our members have observed and people in the sort of Craigleith in the east end of town. Yeah have observed is that there's a lot of infrastructure planning happening in the the west side of town. So you see, you know, there's a attainable housing project that's slated there. There's a community campus of care. There's a parking lot that's just been built downtown. There's a lot of things that are happening there. And then we have community members here in Craigleith seeing that their active transportation trails don't connect. There's still areas where there's no safe crossing of Chozo-Wider Boulevard, as an example. And some of these issues have been here for a decade. There's a real desire to see that infrastructure spread out across the municipality. Do you have any comment on that or any?
1: Well, I would agree with that. I mean, it needs to be everywhere. Fortunately, the East End and the Craigleith sewage treatment plant are more modern and can take a fair bit more capacity because there's a lot of development slated for Uh the Craigleith area right now on the books a lot. And we share water with Collingwood. I saw some criticisms recently of, oh, we need to be self-sufficient with our water. And well, we are, we have a lot of capacity for water, but Engineers and geography, we like redundancy. Like, of course. It's really good to to supply water from several different sources. One goes down, the other one is there. And it just makes sense on a regional approach that some of our water services services Collingwood and some of their water service services services at Town Mountain. It depends yeah. where it is. It's good redundancy. But trails, I think, are really important. And uh, there's going to be a lot of development in the Craigleaf area. Road crossings, I mean... You know, I live in Thornbury, and I can't cross the road without almost getting killed any time of the day, uh, you know, and I, I agree, a lot of this is our increased traffic has increased so much. It's And even through COVID, you know, we, traffic is unbelievable. You know, we've got studies on on transportation uh-huh. and, and, but, you know, there's studies and we've got the province and the county and Collingwood and Gray County and, and Simcoe County. And there's so many moving parts that it's really difficult to say, yeah, we need to do this yeah. next week. Well, I leave your car at home, ride your bicycle and don't fly. Those (laughs) are my
0: (laughs) recommendations. I've seen those studies and the data points really do pinpoint key areas of need. So I think if we're data driven, that should help us get there.
1: We are, but like, I cannot see four lanes going down Highway 26 through from Collingwood to, no. to Thornbury, and you know there are all these wonderful bypass ideas, but you know business people don't want to see bypasses. You we, know? so again, there's there's no right answers. Yeah, we we'll just have to wait and see and and ride your bike,
0: leave your car at home. <laughs> well, there's something to that, that <laughs> analogy. On the flip side of yes. you know everyone's got an ask, everybody yes. wants investments and change, yep. but of course we don't necessarily want to have to pay for it. <laughs> and you know, when, when anyone looks at taxes or uh, tax increases, of course, we don't want to see that. And particularly in this economic environment where there's so much inflation. So what's your read on council's ability to maintain as a low a tax rate as possible while still making service improvements? Is is the municipality financially stable enough to do that or what what's your read? We were four years ago. I'm not
1: sure exactly. I haven't studied all the all the budget documents but what i have seen you know i i'm very frugal in my own life and i was very frugal around council in our eight years i think you know we were 1 to 2% increases i would like to basically say that that's what we're going to continue to do I've learned in my career and in my lifestyle, if you want to save money, one way is to stay out of court, stay out of hearings, don't pick fights, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, That will really reduce a lot of legal expenses and things like that. When you realize the writing is on the wall, going to LPAT and these things like, and when we stood up for various things that, you know, probably LPAT at that time was OMB, we realized might rule against Making a decision and saying, no, we don't agree with that. When your planners say, yes, this is a good plan. And we say, no, we don't like it. Well, what happens is you have professional planners and they can't change their professional opinion, right? Because council doesn't like it. So if if it gets to the point where you have to go to LPAT or OMB, you can't use your town planners. You have to go out and hire outside. So we're going to go and hire outside consultants to make a case For our case, no, you make no decision and then you're open to do various things. So I always thought that was a fairly good uh, approach. Rather than trying to object, you don't make a decision, then your options are open.
0: Yeah. What is your take on the role of planners in a municipality? And lots of people have been talking about that there's been turnover in that department and uh, there's a real let's call it a creative and professional tension between what the planners are trying to achieve, which is comply to Ontario law and deliver recommendations based on their skills and professional accreditation and, you know, following all those processes. And then, of course, you've got a community or a council who bring a different perspective and a different academic discipline to the table. Yeah. How does that creative tension improve or or is it always a factor? And, you know, well, sometimes creative tension is a good thing. It is.
1: In this, you know, the issue... No planners, is they interpret the official plan and the zoning bylaw, it's written there. They don't have any opinions to put forward. They don't have any room to interpret. It's written in the official plan. Again, right. if it says six, says six, you know. So that that's an issue. They interpret the official plan and the zoning bylaw a lot of times. Council residents people aren't in favor of that, and they have opinions that conflict with those things. So that's what you have to bring together. Mm.
0: So the more aligned we are on our official plan, we can let the planners get on with their work.
1: <laughs> yes. See, council has some ability to step outside the regulations. Of course. And maybe make amendments and things like that. And that's maybe council's role. But planners and employees and, and building officials, they are regulated to the hilt on yeah. what's written. So, yeah, they, they really can't step outside and say, well, we think you should do this and we think you should do that. No. We interpret what's written here and your application fits in those yeah. guidelines. One of the things I generally state about this is that you know people have the right to build on their property and the town has the tools to shape that development. It's not you may build if we like it. You may build if the community likes it. No, you have the right to build. That's right.
0: I'd like to sort of close out by just sort of asking you, you talked about being the face of an organization, but what leadership philosophy would you bring to uh, your role as mayor, both in terms of working with your council colleagues, but also in the role as CAO and, and working with a CAO in the town staffing side? So you know, what's your leadership CEO. philosophy?
1: CEO and CAO. That's right. Personal relationships, basically. Yeah. That is the best thing to do. I plan to sit down with every member of council individually and in small groups and find out, you know, when I managed a real estate firm, 25 or so agents and all their problems and all the people. And that time we didn't have the internet, but you know, you could listen to like to management tapes or read books, things like that. And I uh, ascribed to uh, what we called MBWA, which is management by walking around, sitting down with people. and And this was, And also like Dale Carnegie's famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You talk about what's interesting. You talk to people about their family. You get to know them on a personal level. And then it's a lot easier to deal with contentious issues if you have some kind of personal understanding of relationship. The problems we run into are generally not about things. They're about people. For sure. And that's where you have to concentrate on. I'm going to have lunch with the mayor and play crib. You know, come on down. (laughs) And this is part of it. I'm not going to say I want to have, like a friendly, cooperative, you know, council. I and mean, people get around staff, council and everyone. I'm not going to say that it's going to be friendlier because that donates a negative connotation to the last one. I'm going to keep all negative words and issues basically out of any, you know, discussions or things like that. There's not going to be any negativity. So that's, I think that's going to be big. And uh, again, creating personal relationships so you can deal with people when you get to a contentious issue is really important.
0: Yes, absolutely. And very well said. And I think when I first moved to this community, I remember chatting with many people such as yourself when you were uh, on council at the time. And I got a lot of advice from people that actually said, you know, this is a community that's relationship driven. And that's how it has been so successful. And so I've really valued that. And I think it's so true. And I've seen you in action on that front many times. And I think it is one of your strengths and uh, I admire you for it. Wow. And on behalf of all of our listeners, the members of the Village Association and the whole community, thanks for giving us this time. I know how busy it is during the campaign period. You're doing a lot of meetings, a lot of (laughs) door knocking and everything else. And just, we really appreciate it. And uh, I know that our members and listeners appreciate it too. So- Uh, We wish you all the best in the weeks to come in the campaign.
1: Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you do in your village association. And uh, it's more than just, uh, you know, Blue Mountain out here. You know, you folks have done a great job. And this is uh, one of the highlights of Ontario. Everyone comes here. Like, you know.
0: Exactly. We have so much to be proud of.
1: Every time I go away and I come back, I'm just so thrilled that I I live here. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too.
0: Okay. Well, uh, thanks again. Take care. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Blue Mountain Village Voices, a production of the Blue Mountain Village Association. For more, go to bluemountainvillage.ca. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life.